Let's read the scriptures together, both Old Testament and New Testament. Reading first of all from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46, beginning at verse 3. I'll give you a moment to find that. If you have your Bibles, you'll find the book of Isaiah just to the right of the middle of your Bible. In the 46th chapter, beginning at verse 3. The text is framed around the two exhortations to listen and to remember. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make my equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god and they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot even move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. And from the New Testament, the book of James, this will be the sermon text this morning, James, James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, heal our ears, I pray, in order that we might hear wonderful things declared to us from your word. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We continue our look in the book of James. And uh, as we have reflected on this particular text, it does suit the circumstances in our day and our age. And I have titled what we are going to talk about or the reflections on this particular text in Mindset Matters. In other words, how you think really makes a difference in life. How you think and what you think uh, shapes the way that you live your life. And James is continuing to build on this reality in the same way what you think about God and how you think about God will shape the way that you live your life. Uh, James has been encouraging us to be humble, to humble ourselves before the Lord. 
that in itself is a mindset. Humility is a way of thinking, as is pride a way of thinking. And so James has been saying our posture in life before God is to be a posture of humility. And as he's been working through this particular text, and we read it, uh, James uh, sort of ended a, a little bit earlier, I think in verse 10, where he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so he's telling us about our relationship with God. And then as we go a little bit farther in some of those verses, in verses 7 to 10, he tells us what we are to do before God. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and draw near to God. And humble yourselves before the Lord. And so the question, I think, one of the questions that rises at the top is, well, what kind of God is he? Or who is this God that we are to submit to or that we are to draw near to or that we are to um, humble ourselves before to? It's a question that we ought to ask. And so last week we answered the question this way from verses 11 to 12, that the God to whom we are to draw near to, the God who we are to submit to, is the lawgiver and judge. There is no other lawgiver that we submit to uh, outside of God's authority. There is no other judge who who we will give an account to for our lives. And so that is the God that we humble ourselves before. One who has given us a law and one who will judge us according to that law. As we think about it this week, James has continued to reflect on that. And he says, this is another point about the God to whom you are to submit yourselves to. He is a God who is absolutely sovereign over all of life. And the sovereignty of God is expressed through his providence, which we just sung about in this song. The providence is God's day-to-day governing, controlling, guiding, and directing of all the affairs of every man, woman, beast, and animal, of everything that is in this universe as he guides it and directs it. Here are just a few texts to begin to flesh that out in your own thinking, in your own mind. Um, Most of these from Proverbs. The heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. A man's steps are ordained by the Lord. So how can anyone understand his way? Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in man's heart, but the Lord's decree will prevail. See, if you were part of our congregation a a number of months back, we were in the book of Joseph, and we saw how that particular truth bore itself out about how we plan in our heart, but God's decree is the one that prevails. When Joseph had a pair of dreams, his brothers were infuriated by what those dreams intimated. And they determined to kill Joseph and then see what would come of his dreams. But we know that as they determined that, God had another plan. And God provided opportunities for them to have an out of murdering their brother, and rather they sold him into slavery. And so we see how God's decree through the dream to Joseph prevailed. We can turn to scripture after scripture, and we can see this reality worked out, that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was thinking about this as uh, reflecting again on the providence of God, and This time I went to a little book called Concise Theology by J.I. Packer. And there he writes about providence, and he, he puts it this way. He says, if creation 
was a unique exercise of divine energy causing the world to be, providence is the continued exercise of that same energy whereby the creator, according to his own will, keeps all creatures and beings, involves himself in all events, and directs all things to their appointed end. The model is of purposive personal management with total hands-on control. God is completely in charge of his world. His hand may be hidden, but his rule is absolute. This is how the Bible understands the will of God. It's this inescapable conclusion that we are drawn to as we read Scripture again and again. The providence of God is the, is the, uh, the environment through which freedom or human freedom is worked out. J.I. Packer has another paragraph which I think is so helpful. It's a positive response to the providence of God in our lives. He says, The providence teaches us, or the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces, either fortune, change, luck, or fate. And all that happens to them, not most of what happens to them, but all that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event, this is so critical, each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice, knowing that it is all for one's spiritual and eternal good. And I would add this, that each providential moment in our lives is a summons to worship God for his guidance and his control over our world, and over our lives. And so the question that I think James is putting before us is do we live each day in the confidence that the fatherly hand of God ultimately determines where we go, when we go, and what we accomplish if we go? This is the setting that James opens up for us or describes for us. It's a setting that could be any boardroom Anywhere in the world, in verse 13, the first part of verse 13 of James. It is this scene that could be worked out in a boardroom or in investment banks, in coffee shops or around our kitchen tables where we sit down and we make plans. And even before James describes the scene, he begins with a tone of almost incredulity. He says, come now. We sometimes use similar words when somebody says something that's a little bit fanciful to us. And we say, come on, really? It's a, come on, you don't really believe that, do you? And so I think that's how James, the tone that I at least imagine that's in his voice. And so he says, come now, you who say. Notice here, I just want to stop here for a moment. There's another reference to speech. And James is saying a lot about how we talk. Because our speech reflects what's in our heart. And James has a great deal to say about the heart. And so last week, what was in our heart was evil towards our brothers. Whoever speaks evil against another. It, the, what we have in our heart comes out in our speech. And what James was getting at last week was that we disregard the command to love our neighbor as ourself. And that disregard is coming out in our speech when we speak evil of them. To do so puts ourselves above the command to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now in this section again, James puts his finger on more sinful speech. And the sinful speech here is a, 
kind of speech that disregards the first part of the law. That you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. It's arrogant speech. It's ignorant speech. It's speech that comes from a heart that is determined that God doesn't have any influence over their life. And so James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You see, there's an arrogance that James is describing here in their planning. There's a misplaced confidence in their planning. There's an inflated sense of one's abilities. There's, there's a sense that one says, well, I know what's going to happen not only today, but tomorrow and even a year down the road. He says, he says they're claiming to have knowledge of what will happen 360 days from now. But notice the presumptions that James puts his finger on. The first presumption is about life. Today or tomorrow or a year. The presumption there is that we will live at will. That we have control over today, tomorrow, and a year down the road. The second is a presumption about choice. Today or tomorrow, we will go and spend a year in trade. The presumption there is that we are masters of our own universe. That we determine what's going to happen today, tomorrow, and a year later. And the third is the presumption about ability. Trade and get gain. That my success is in my hand. In short, that I control all of my life. I was thinking about the complexity of all of this and realizing that I, I may have a semblance of control over my own life. Just a teeny bit, but I have no control over the driver beside me. I have no control over the person around me. I have no control over the events outside of what I control. And as I was doing that, I came across this, this little illustration uh, in uh, some writings of John MacArthur. And he says, suppose you take ten pennies and mark them from one to ten. Just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then you put them into your pocket and you shake your pocket up. Shake it around for a while, mix up those ten pennies in your pocket, make sure they're really good and mixed up, and now try to draw them out in sequence from one through to ten. The way uh, the, that, you, that you pull out a coin and then you put it in, so you go to pull up coin one and you drop it back in, and then you go to pull out coin two and you drop it back in, and see if you can bring them out in sequence, one through ten. He says, your chance of drawing out number one is one in ten. Your chance of drawing out number one and two in succession is one in a hundred. Your chance of drawing out one, two, and three, and four in succession is one in ten thousand. And so on, until your chance of drawing number one through ten in succession would re reach the unbelievable figure of one chance in ten billion. Now, if you can't control ten pennies in your pocket... How are you ever going to control everything in your environment? You can't, because we recognize that there are infinite complexities that are so far beyond our ability to control. And there are some people in the world who feel foolishly, though, as James is saying here, that they are in charge. The issue, again, is not planning for the future. James here is not denouncing effective, wise planning. Neither is he in any way suggesting that it is sinful to look down the road after high school graduating. Some of you are supposed to graduate this year. 
And James is not saying, well, it's silly to look down the road and say, well, I'm going to choose this college and I want to go into that degree. No, what James is contending is the attitude of mind, the way of thinking that you control your future, that you can do it without reference to God and submission to the will of God. See, James is reminding us that mindset matters. There's a particular parable in the New Testament that some of you are likely familiar with, and maybe it's popping into your mind right now. Jesus told this parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. That was not his doing. It just happened to produce. He planted the seed. He might have watered it, but it produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, there is mindset. There is self-talk. He thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. I always think of that guy that wore all those chains around him, um, Mr. T. And he always went around going, fool. It's like God looks down from heaven and he goes, fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, again, even in this parable, God is not saying anything, or Jesus is not indicating that there's anything wrong with wealth. The point is mindset. It was not wrong for this man to think about his future. There's no dishonesty implied in the actions that he undertook. His problem, though, was self-centered, self-referential perspective that failed to take into account God and God's plan for his future and God's plan for his life. And so James now will begin to dismantle this presumptive way of thinking about life. And he begins by just saying there is a certain unpredictability about life. In verse 14a, the first part of verse 14, he says, Even though you act as though you control your days, you don't know what tomorrow will begin. Or what, will, what tomorrow will bring. This is what Solomon said in Proverbs 21.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Boy, doesn't that resonate in our world, in our lives today. And James will pick up on this boasting in verse, six, in verse 16. But it's like, come now, do you really want me to believe that you know what's going to happen tomorrow? James wants us to realize that there is an unpredictability about life. And yet so many of us live as though we have a predictable life. James is saying to presume and to live that way is simply arrogance. And it can be downright dangerous. Think about Haman. If you, if you have time this week, ha, if you have time this week, go and read the book of Esther. And read the book of Esther with what James is describing here in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17 in mind. Just read the book of Esther, and you will see how unpredictable life is. You see, it matters greatly 
to God how you think about your future plans as much as it does the actual pursuit of those future plans. So go ahead, but plan in pencil. Plan in humility and dependence upon God, not with arrogant pride. I was again thinking of Isaiah 30. We've talked about this as a congregation uh, a few times um, in the past. God's word in Isaiah 30 says this, What sorrow awaits my rebellious children? That in itself is a fascinating way that God premises what he's, what he's about to say. What sorrow awaits my rebellious children, says the Lord. You make plans that are contrary to mine. You make alliances not directed by my spirit, thus piling up your sins. For without consulting me, you have gone down to Egypt for help. You have put your trust in Pharaoh's protection. You have tried to hide in his shade. I stated at the beginning of this point, there is a certain unpredictability of life from an earthly human perspective. In light of this certainty, the wise person will draw near to God, will humble himself before the Lord, will submit to him. John Piper wrote, God means for the truth about himself and about his providential and sovereign control over all of life to be known and felt and spoken as part of our reason for being. We are not created to do this and that. We were created to do this and that under the loving, careful guidance of our Creator. And so it's like James is encouraging them and us. Beloved, admit your ignorance of the future. The second thing that James puts before them as a way to temper their arrogance is the comparative brevity of life. You see, the second assumption that James exposes is the reality of life. He says, come now. Do you know you will even be alive tomorrow? He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. There are no exceptions here. You are all. Each one of us is like a mist. And contrary to public perception, there are no such things as the invincibles. We have no firm substance here on earth. We are as fragile, and this is what James wants us to think about. We are as fragile as a mist, or a vapor, or a puff of smoke, or an exhaled breath on a cold winter's day. Notice what he says, you appear for a little time. Boy, that is, has a way of humbling us, doesn't it? You appear for a little time, and then what? Then you vanish. You're gone. Is this not what it feels like to lose a loved one? We get a sense of this when we lose somebody we love. All of a sudden we reflect, boy, I only wanted them just for another six months. Or, or the, the moment they die, within a couple days, we're thinking, they just vanished. They've, they've just gone. They've, they've just disappeared. I think it was Mary, Queen of Scots, who says, my kingdom for six more months. He says, we are a mist, a vapor, and then we vanish. 
let Scripture make the point. I want to read a number of them to you. I think some of them will be in the notes if you download them later. First few come from Job. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. I don't know if you ever watched that on TV, uh, 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 making a, a carpet or a rug, and the shuttle just goes back and forth. And they come to their end without hope. For we were born but yesterday and know nothing. Our days on earth are as fleeting as a shadow. Again, he says, my life passes more swiftly than a runner. Think of Hussein Bolt doing the 100-meter dash. My life passes more swiftly than a 100-meter dash. It flees away without a glimpse of happiness. It disappears like a swift papyrus boat, like an eagle swooping down on its prey. How frail is humanity, how short is life, how full of trouble. We blossom like a flower and then wither, like a passing flower or shadow, we disappear quickly. It was the psalmist who said, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths, a handbreaths, a few handbreaths, you have made my days. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. There it is again. Surely a man goes about like a shadow. Another place the psalmist says in Psalm 102 verse 11, My life passes as swiftly as evening shadows. I am withering away. Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses uh, we don't always think of Moses having written a psalm, but Moses wrote Psalm 90. And there's a context which I don't have time to go into this morning with us, but Moses notes the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. They are soon gone and we fly away. And in response to the swiftness of life, Moses says, teach me to number my days. fascinating. Moses doesn't say, teach me to number my years. He says, teach me to number my days. Notice, though, that in each of these scriptures, they may describe the quantity of life, but not the quality of life. And we should never conclude that the length of days equals the quality of days. All we should conclude is that life is fragile. We are like a mist, and then we vanish. These days in which we live, we are daily being reminded of the fragility of life and of the uncertainty of the future. Beloved, keep in mind that one day you too will vanish. After a little time, you will be gone, and life will go on without you. Mindset matters. This is the truth about life. I noted in the heading, the comparative brevity of life. Why comparative? And this I was helped in thinking through by a fellow named Sinclair Ferguson. He says, there is a real danger in setting our clocks to the wrong kind of time. Fascinating comment. I think what he was saying is that we, we often set our clocks to earth time, not eternity time. And he notes that this life is really short, but the life to come is eternal. What matters is not what we gain in this life, 
but what we do to prepare for the life to come. This is why, this helps us understand a, a text like Matthew where Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all this other stuff will be given to you. Or another place where he says, What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his soul? So loved ones, the second thing that we need to admit is the frailty of our lives. So far, he's talked about the unpredictability of life and the brevity of life as ways to undermine the arrogant assumption that we control life, that we are masters of our destiny. And then the third point that he makes is the, necessity, or the necessary humility in life. He comes back to in verse 15 and he adds a corrective now. It tells us the right view of God that we should implant in our hearts and minds and out of our mouths. And it is this simple phrase, if the Lord wills. You'll notice again in the notes that I've kind of taken a little bit of time to unpack this because I, I think there's a breadth to the will of the Lord that we need to take into account. There certainly is the will of the Lord that's revealed in his word, which we have to obey explicitly it's the moral will of God given to us we have no ability to say no I won't do that we simply obey it and then there's the will of God for my life in general and 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 that is also given to us as obedience and you can find some of the text I've referenced there this is the will of God that you give thanks or this is the will of God your sanctification General statements about what God wills for our life. But then there's this third category of the will of God, which is determined by his sovereign and providential rule. I suspect that most of us, uh, when we question the will of God, we don't really question the moral will of God. It's pretty clear. We don't really question the general will of God. We can't really argue with it. He says, give thanks all the time, or this is my will that you be sanctified. Um, but where we do wrestle with the will of God is, in understanding his providential work in our lives. It's the third aspect of the will of God that troubles us the most. And it's here where scripture calls us to trust in our Heavenly Father. And it's in this third area of the will of God that we need to be careful in the folly of excluding God from our lives. The Lord willing. Now, the Lord willing can become something that just trips off of our tongue, and it really is meaningless. It's a phrase sometimes that is very much like, how are you? It's just a social convenience, a social structure that we have embraced in our lives. And often we say it, but we don't really think it through or haven't really meant it. I will go and finish this sermon, the Lord willing. After this, I'm going to go home and have lunch, the Lord willing. And I'll be back next week. Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. I'll be back next week, the Lord willing. Now, each of those is true. But it's not the words that matter so much as what's in my heart. Do I really live as though God may stop my breathing in 10 seconds from now? Do I really have this response of humility before God that I will submit my life to his will, whatever that might be. If I don't return next week, it's not as though God has failed. And, and it would not be that God has let my wife down or my boys down if I don't show up next week. If I were to die next week, I would have lived 21,644 days and each one of them would have been a gift from God who holds my breath in his hands. 
James says, draw near to that God. Submit to that God. Humble yourselves before that God. See, what matters is that we wrestle with this question. Is it biblical and beneficial for me to entrust my future into the hands of God? See, James is still working through this scenario, verse 13. And here he, he tells us what's wrong with that presumption. He says, rather than having the attitude and the mindset of verse 13, this ought to be our mindset. Instead, you ought to live with this. If the Lord wills, we will live. That's the mindset of the fragility of life. If the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. That's the mindset of the unpredictability of life, that it's God that determines what my tomorrow will be or what my next year will be. If the Lord wills, we will live means, beloved, and this is difficult for us to hear, but there are times when God does not will that somebody continue to live. I realize that this is a hard thing for us sometimes to swallow. And it's unsettling for us to realize that there is a time when our days conclude. But it's biblical. Moses said, see now, as he's quoting God, see now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is no one that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 2.6, the Lord brings death and he gives life. He says some to Sheol and he raises other up. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this he did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Psalm 139, 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. Loved ones, it's in times like this, the days in which we are living, especially where your spouse and your children need to hear you say it and watch you conduct your life with the belief that God is sovereign over your life and that God providentially guides and directs your life and that there are no accidents before the God of Scripture. Loved ones, we are ignorant of the future. I think that's a really, really good thing. How would your life be different if you knew what would happen two weeks from today? What would change in your life if you knew for certainty that you would face a certain adversity or experience an unexpected prosperity? How would your relationship God with God change if you knew what would happen two weeks from today? Instead, we ought to be content to say, if the Lord wills. See, God wants us to learn from our past, but he has hidden our futures from us so that we would trust him wholly. Loved ones, admit your dependence upon God. And then finally, James pulls it all together in verse 16 and 17, where he describes the sinful arrogance of life lived without an eye towards God. 
And we say, well, how serious really is this presumption? James does see a little, seem a little bit distressed about the fact that some continue to boast about the future. He's exposed the folly of that in their presumptions. And even in life of the way they've lived, they should know what is true about God. And yet he says to them, as it is, you boast. He says, you still remain confident in your future plans. You take credit for your successes. You use your success to entice others to put confidence in your plan. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You see, if it's the wrong, if the wrong attitude is exposed in verse 13 as ignorance, you ought to know here the wrong attitude is arrogance. And then he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And he says, all boasting is evil. That's really strong language, isn't it? You know, we might think to ourselves, well, ignorant, yes. It's ignorant, really, to think that way. Arrogant, possibly, you know, that's, that's, that really is a bit of an arrogant thing to say, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow. But evil? You've got to be kidding me. But that's how serious God thinks about our living without any knowledge of him or putting him out of our lives. It's a serious thing to approach life as though God didn't exist. See, James is worried here that we don't swallow the self-sufficiency that is around us in the world and it becomes a poison in our life. This is a picture of a self-made man or woman. It's the briefest of possible descriptions of the practical atheist. This is the person who lives as though God doesn't matter, as though God doesn't fit into their picture. It doesn't mean they don't necessarily believe in God. They just live as though that God has no influence over their life. It's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. And you can read the story of Nebuchadnezzar as well if you've got time this week. You see, it's entirely possible for us to believe in God and yet live as though he didn't exist. And so James says here, loved ones, Admit that you're sinful, that your boasting is sinful. And so his conclusion is simply this. Whoever knows the right thing to do, if you know you should plan in pencil and fails to do it, you plan in ink, for him it is a sin. If you know that you should live in dependence on God and trust God, and yet you live entirely the opposite of that, to you, it is a sin. We started by rehearsing the generosity of God. He gives grace to the humble. Humility is then seen in submitting ourselves to God and drawing ourselves uh, and drawing near to God and humbling ourselves before God. This is the mindset that James wants us to cultivate. A mindset that trusts God. A mindset that lives in humility before God. A mindset that walks in the understanding of the providential leading of God. I was thinking again about the, uh, the 26th question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's an amazing, our catechisms are amazing gifts to us, but question 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. What do you believe when you say that? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. 
Well, this is the first part of the answer. That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds them and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father because of Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Submit to the shepherd of your soul. The Lord is my shepherd. As we walk with him, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A few days ago, my eyes lighted on John chapter 12, verses 27 to 28. Probably a couple of weeks ago, and my mind has been turning this text over and over in my head. It's Jesus' words as he's talking to the Father. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. Is that not how we're to think? To live trusting in our Heavenly Father with our present and our future? And this is not always easy. Sometimes it can cause us great sorrow and distress as we walk the road that God is leading us on. But as we learn from Jesus, the issue is not my feelings or my path or my will. The issue is that God be glorified in my path and my soul. I end with this. The last part of the question of 26 of the Heidelberg Catechism goes like this. We just read the first part. The last part goes like this. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul. And he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. He is able to do this because he is an almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father. God is real and that changes everything. Father, we do come before you today and we're thankful for this word from James, as we continue to open up this book and to realize how relevant your word is. It's the living word of God. And I pray, Father, that as we reflect on this word throughout the rest of this day and maybe into this week, that you would move us, Father, from sinful speech, which makes arrogant declarations about our abilities and about our knowledge of the future towards humility before you and dependence upon you and trust in you. Father, would you help us to cultivate a mindset which trusts in you? 
and depends upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. and then follow them later in the